Let's get right into it. We're back. We're still in John chapter 7. Uh, this has been a, another convicting passage for me as I've studied it this week, and I hope uh, that transfers off onto all of you as we go through it today. So could I ask you to please stand one more time uh, as we listen intently together to God's inerrant word in uh, John chapter 7, starting at verse 25. This is God's inerrant word. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, is, this not, is, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they, say, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we come to it, and we're challenged by it again to see our own attitudes revealed, and and, uh, some of the shoddy ideas we have about life being brought to the surface, Lord, We thank you that your word constantly refreshes us and gives us uh, new insight and perspective into who you are and what you've brought us into. And Lord, we pray today as we go through your word that that you would help us to see the the beauty of what you offer us and the things that you are bringing us into participating in, that we might be excited about those things uh, and, and, and glorify your name through them, Lord. Ultimately, that's what we pray, that you would be glorified by us, Lord, as your creatures who love you. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. So we are, um, this, what I just read, is a part of a much longer passage. This is Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a, it's, go, it's really, it spreads over the course of two whole chapters, from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 8. Uh, and so what, last week, we were in scene 1, act 1, and today we're moving into scene 1, act 2. We're having to take it in little bits and pieces as we go along, because it's such a long, long story and a long dialogue. And uh, Just to bring you up to speed, if you were here last week, and if you weren't last week, last week, uh, Jesus came to the temple, and he, and he went up in the middle of this feast, and he began to teach in the, in the temple, and in the course of his teaching, he entered into this 
confrontation with the Jewish ruling elite at the time. And through that confrontation, uh, he did a couple of things. He, once, he, he, he undermined their whole religious system, basically informed them that they weren't really worshiping the God of the Bible. They were instead worshiping each other. Uh, he called them out on their own inconsistencies in their teaching of the law, how they had lost sight of the spirit of the law to love God and to love one another and, and to love your neighbor and, and rather had brought the law down to this minutia of keeping these little things of the law so that they could make themselves feel self-righteous and then look down upon everyone else. Uh, and then he publicly reprimanded them to make their judgments uh, by the word of God rather than their own so-called astute religious opinions. So to say that things were heating up in Jerusalem would really be an understatement. This is, in their opinion, like we talked about last week, Jesus is this untrained, unqualified, rural teacher who's showed up in the temple, and he's just called out the high priests, the Pharisees, the go-to guys, the people that everybody looked to as the righteous rulers of Jerusalem and people that thought that about themselves. And in the midst of this, heated conversation with his enemies, we get to where we're at right now. Scene one, act two, the curtains open up, and this is the big lesson, the big idea, the thesis that Jesus wants to teach us from this section of the passage, and that's this, that God promises to protect his messengers as we speak the truth in love, that time is short, so seek Jesus now. God promises to protect his messengers as we speak the truth in love that time is short, so seek Jesus now. We'll work our way through that big idea. So the first part is God promises to protect his messengers. Listen to verse 725. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? When you read that at face value, you think that these people are uh, maybe changing their mind. But, and and what they're, the, the impression that they're giving, or the impression that we're given, is that they think maybe the reason that Jesus is still teaching or is able to do this, able to basically take command of the temple in such a way that he is able to chastise the leaders in front of everyone, is that maybe the leaders are still somewhat undecided about who Jesus is. But we know, because we have the rest of the gospel, the backstory that the decision to kill him happened two chapters ago in John chapter 5, when he broke the Sabbath and compared himself and gave himself the same prerogatives that God has From that point forward, as one commentator said, they never forgave him and they never forgot. And the plan to to try him and to kill him was set into motion and it never, ever stopped from that point. And so the truth is, the reason he's able to do this, the truth is, is that they just can't stop him from doing it. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, fantastic stories in 2 Kings chapter 6, about the horses and chariot of, of fire. If you know the story, there's the, the prophet Elisha and his servant uh, are basically, they're in, the king of Syria is trying to attack the king of Israel. And every time they do, 
Elisha, the prophet, goes to the king of Israel and tells him what he's going to do ahead of time so their plots are all foiled. And the king of Syria thinks to himself, there must be a spy among us. And one of his people says, no, it's the prophet of Israel. And he, uh, he's telling the king what's going to happen before it happens. And he's totally blowing your cover. So the king of Syria decides to take his entire army. They find out where Elisha is in this little town of Dothan. They go and they surround the entire uh, they, they surround the entire village with their massive army. And then this is what happens next. The sun comes up that next day. And when the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. That's the Syrian army. They're in big trouble. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He's freaking out, right? And rightly so, wouldn't you? And Elisha said to him, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what happened? In the, in the real world, not three-dimensional world, the real world, the spiritual world that we can't see, Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be open, and he saw that they weren't, it wasn't just Elisha and his servant in this little podunk village surrounded by the massive Syrian army by themselves. They were surrounded by the chariots of fire, of the, the angelic armies of God, the Lord of hosts. His armies had surrounded them and were protecting them. And then the next scene he does this Obi-Wan Kenobi move and they're all blinded and he leads them into the, to the middle of their capital city and then they wake up and they're all surrounded and then they feed them and send them home and they don't attack anymore. It's a fantastic story, but look what's just happened in this story with Jesus. I mean, we don't, I don't think we're really getting the picture, but you know, his, his brothers in the last chapter were saying, you know, if you want to be known, if you want to go be bold and show people who you are, you need to go to Jerusalem and do some miracles so that everybody will follow you. And he, he rejects that because he's not about being famous. He's not about getting people to follow him. He's about his father's mission. And yet, he comes to the temple midway through the feast. Jesus, by himself, in the, the center of Jerusalem religious elite power, the very people he knows are trying to assassinate him. And he walks into the middle of this and starts preaching in the middle of the temple. That's got to take some guts, right? I mean, how is he able to do that? Well, we know, we know that Elisha you know, prayed to God to see, let his servant see the angelic army. So that implies to us that Elisha knew they were there, Right? If Elisha knew that he was surrounded by these angelic armies, and so too Jesus must have known and did know that the powers that appeared to us to be so scary and so oppressive were really small compared to the power that surrounded him in the angelic realm. And there's one part in the Gospels when he, said, you know, he says to Peter, do you, you not think I could call legions of angels to come to my assistance if I did not want to? He is calling the shots go through with his Father's will, which is to go eventually to the cross. But in the meantime, what this tells us is that in the meantime, the reason they weren't able to touch him is because 
God would not let them put a hand on him. Listen to verse verse 30, I think it is, where he says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So if Jesus knew that he was protected by all these angelic powers, shouldn't we know the same? Shouldn't we know that God is protecting us as we go out as messengers in the world? One of the, here's one of the scariest things I've ever had to do in my, in my Christian walk, and it's kind of silly compared to what a lot of people are asked to do, but I had a, there was an, I had a friend, an uh, unbelieving friend who passed away. We went to his, his wake, and it was full of this group of men that were basically pagan in their spirituality. They had this nebulous view of God, of the spirit God, and, and they were basically just a different versions of the made-up God that suited their own imaginations. And so we went to this funeral, and we're sitting there, and they have an open mic, and people are going up and saying nice things about him. And all of a sudden, I just feel that pressure on my chest that I'm supposed to go up to this mic and share the gospel. And I've, of course, my first response is, no, no way. I'm not doing it. I know they don't want to hear it. Uh, I'll just be ridiculed. It's not going to do any good. All these like excuses just going through my mind. And... Um, fighting God hand and foot. And finally, I, I, I just raised my hand. I'm like, okay, no guy's not going to call on me. So I raise my hand, calls on another guy, calls on another guy, calls on another guy. And eventually he goes, okay, we got time for one more. And of course he picks me. And so I walk up there to this gathering of men and, and, and uh, terrified, scared to death. And I got up there and I share the gospel. And, you know, I'd like to say that then I did an altar call and everybody came forward and we all accepted the Lord and, and we all prayed together. You know, that didn't happen. You know, Mike Horton says there's no altar calls in apologetics. Um, but what I did learn from it is that even if when I was, this is what God, I think, was teaching me in that, is that even when I was absolutely terrified to do something, I could still do it. I could still do it. And then it would be okay. I had one of my buddies, Chip Raybon, was a, a master gunny sergeant, marine recon, and he, puts, he put this post up once that said, sometimes the fear doesn't go away, you just have to do it afraid. And I was like, man, that was one of the wisest things I've ever heard because sometimes, you know, we think, you know, we think in the Bible when it says, be not afraid, it doesn't, that we're supposed to all of a sudden be, have no fear. What it more or less means, I think, is that don't let your fear rule you. Be in faith. Walk through it anyways and see what God does with that. And, um, you know, what I had to do with those, that, those men in that pagan collective was, like, was nothing compared to the story I read the other day about uh, Iranian Christians who take jobs as taxi drivers so that they can share the gospel. It's something that they know that they get caught for. They have the potential of being put to death. And... But they do it anyway. They picked this, they've figured out this system of they, they, they become taxi drivers so they can drive somebody through the city and there's a, very, there's a small chance of, you know, being, being if, if it goes badly, they can drop them off and get out of there, I guess, right? But they're risking their lives in order to share the gospel in this country. I was not risking my life when I went up to the dude. I was risking my reputation amongst these men that I respected, Right?
And that was it. But what's the first thing that goes through your mind when you feel that tug to say something? And I don't mean point out somebody's sin. I mean, I mean share. When you have the opportunity, there's that golden opportunity where you have an opportunity to add, give some light about what the gospel really is or what Christian faith really believes or God you know, brings you into this opportunity to share or speak something. Is it, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it, is it angelic armies surrounding me? Not me, not me either. You know, that, that situation is a good indicator. The first thing I think is no, not going to do it. Then I, you know, and then I think, uh, go through some rationalizations. You know, when I was first baby Christian, I would think, you know, there, it never, the fear never goes away. You always think there's something they're going to catch you on. You know, at first it was, well, what if they ask me about, you know, the problem of evil? And then you go to school for four years, and it's like, what if they ask me about the inconsistencies in 12th century minuscule manuscripts? And, uh, you know, it just, it just never goes away. There's always something that your mind can grab onto that makes you afraid to speak in that situation. Um, but the point is that we can do it. Even if we're scared, we can still walk in, and we can do it. You know, we had this, we had our men's group last night, and we have a, a men's group that we meet once a month, and we talk about a specific talk, a topic about the discipline of the Christian life in, in, for men in, in our culture, in our place and time. And one of the big, like, realizations, we were talking about Hebrews chapter 12, um, about how when we come to worship, we are joining with all the saints that have gone before us that are in heaven, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, is what Hebrews said. And it dawned on us, as we're sitting there, it dawned on us that most of our people, most of our people are glorified beings in heaven. And that's so important to think that way, I think. It was such a realization for me because I tend to think of little Christian enclaves surrounded by the pagan armies of the West. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I mean, really? Isn't that how we think? That we're surrounded, that we're being persecuted, that, you know, the enemy is upon us, that, you know, just all the things we think about. But the reality is most, probably, most Christians are part of that glorified angelic army that is surrounding us right now. And we are immortal and perfectly under God's protection until the moment he calls us home. And so we can walk through our fear and be witnesses in the way that God has called us to do because no one will be able to lay a hand on us if God doesn't say it's okay first. So if we really believe that God is in control of all things and that God has called us to be his witnesses in the world, then we can trust God's promise to protect us and we can walk into any situation seeing primarily those angelic armies that are surrounding us rather than the temporary things that the world tries to scare us with. And it means that we can do that in the freedom of love. First point, God promises to protect his messengers. Second, as we speak the truth in love. And this is, I think, what hit me the hardest about this passage. It's about, about how Jesus spoke to these enemies in the temple what he was doing there in the first place 
and that he went in there knowing what it was going to cost him. It's one of the great things I said last week that, you know, don't ever be a preacher because God's going to cycle you through all these sins in the Bible, and I would never preach Job and whatnot. But the other thing about being, having the privilege of being immersed in the Word is that it just, it, 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 you have opportunities to like to have the word just strip you of these preconceived ideas and how these cultural ideas about different things can can um, can make you think wrongly about things that you think you understand perfectly well. Like I mean, I know that love does not mean infatuation or what I can get from you. Love means self-sacrificial service for the benefit of another. That's a biblical category. And yet, when I think of the term, Paul uses it in Ephesians 4 about speaking the truth in love. I've always thought about that in terms of speaking the truth nicely. Don't you? Speaking the truth uh, with kindness. Speaking the truth with understanding. Speaking the truth because we really care about people. But I think about... I think about speaking the truth in love as like being like Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He's just so nice. Nobody's, you just can't get upset with him. You might not have a real stimulating conversation with Fred, but no one's going to really get mad at Mr. Rogers, right? But I was reading this, and I realized that speaking the truth in love is not so much about being like Fred Rogers. It's way more about being like Jim Elliott. Do you know, if you know who Jim Elliott is, he's a missionary. He and four other men went to Ecuador in the 50s to bring the gospel uh, to this tribe, this unreached tribe of the Alcas in Ecuador. Ed McCulley, uh, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott were the five guys that went there. And I was reading about it this week. I was looking for an illustration of someone who went to speak the truth in such a way that he was willing to self-sacrifice for the benefit of another, even if it was going to cost him his life. And I knew the story. If you don't know the story, they went down, they made contact with this tribe, and, and the tribe killed them. What I, what I didn't know, or what I really didn't realize, was how, was that they knew when they were going in, they pretty much knew. It wasn't that those tribe men, those tribe, those tribe people might kill them. They knew that they would try to kill them unless they figured out some way to, to build bridges with them. And so they came up with these systems of dropping buckets down with gifts in them. And eventually the Alcas put a gift back in the bucket, and they thought that was a sign that they would, had made some relationship goals with, the, with these guys. And, and so they landed knowing that these people had killed everyone who ever came into their territory, oil workers, other missionaries, you name it. And... And the other thing I didn't know was that they had guns. They all had guns in their pocket. When you read the story, Jim Elliott, the two women came out into the river. They went out to greet them, and they heard the war cries behind them, and they turned around. The other Alcas were there with a the spear. Jim reaches for the gun in his pocket and then stops because they'd all agreed ahead of time that they would not shoot and kill an unsaved Alca Indian in order to save themselves when they knew what that they were redeemed. They made that conscious decision to go in and speak the truth in love, love defined as sacrificing themselves for the benefit of another person. 
And that's what Jesus was doing in the temple. Now, no one's going to try and shoot up, kill us for sharing the gospel in America. I mean, come on. We like to get all, you know, excited, but honestly, no one's going to try and kill us. So what does this mean for us, speaking the truth in love? It means that God has called us to be witnesses as I said in the prayer earlier, that Jesus, Jesus is leading by example to show us that we should be, or we're being called to be witnesses uh, in a way that's not just convenient, but in a way that's consistent. Even when we know ahead of time it's going to be costly. And I think we forget that a lot. I think it's real, it's so easy for us to get in, um, to put, and, and I'm not, this is, well, this is what I'm not, let me say what I'm not saying first. I'm not saying that you should disregard all the biblical commands about being husbands and fathers and, and employees and, and being, um, glorifying God in your vocation to run off uh, into the foreign mission field and be a hero. Primarily, God, if God has called us Many of us here to be fam- to have to, to be fathers and to be husbands and to love our children and to raise them in the faith and be faithful in our churches. But there's a certain sense, and I think it's true for all of us, that we can tend to become more convenient oriented oriented in our witnessing, i.e., uh, when something comes up, rather than it being a focus, a committed focus of our everyday lives and that we remain committed even when it's costly. I mean, I have gone, I've gone through weird seasons like that personally. Like I'm in school, I'm in an evangelism class, and just all of a sudden I'm just sharing the gospel all over the place. Why? Because I'm just focused on it in my mind. I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm praying about it all the time more than, more than anything. And God is, you know, God is answering those prayers and making those appointments and bringing people to share the faith with. And when I say being witnesses, I mean I, being witnesses. I mean in an all-inclusive way. Okay, um, there's, on the one sense, it's about sharing the gospel, the culmination of witnessing, sharing the gospel of Jesus, the, his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. The fact that we that sin isn't just things we do; that it's just a, it's a corruption of our innermost being in such a way that we put self ahead of everything else and cause pain and suffering in the world. We, we destroy God's creation in the process and ourselves, and, 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 and we are separated with God because of that moral separation. And Jesus incarnating, coming, paying the price for our sins, living a perfect, righteous life, giving us his righteousness by having faith, by looking outside of ourselves and saying, I am sinful, I need I need righteousness that I don't possess and looking outside of ourselves to Jesus and saying I need your righteousness the sharing of the gospel in everyday life, correcting the misconceptions of what people think Christianity is really all about. So on one hand when I say witnessing I mean I mean that doing that and being that even if it means 
it's going to be costly, right? Me, Nisa and I, we share a Facebook account. And we've, we've, uh, we share a Facebook account because we want to share our lives together. And Nisa works for a government agency. And, um, you know, part of my, you know, I, I, we've contemplated getting a Facebook divorce because of my posts on Facebook, right? We've had good friends of hers defriend us because I'm sharing certain things on Facebook. And, and so we've contemplated getting a Facebook divorce so that that might not cost her her job. But it's led us to these conversations of, thing, it's getting closer and closer to the day when she might not be able to have that job anymore. And that's a reality that we're thinking about. And so, I mean, that's, that's reality. Part of what I'm talking about witnessing being costly is that. Are we willing to be consistent in our, in our witness? Even it means... My wife loses her job, which means we have to sell our house, which means a lot of things, right? Uh, yeah, because <laughs> she makes way more money than I do. <laughs> um, but I also mean that in another way. I mean not just about how we speak the truth and love sacrificially to the outside world, but also how we speak to each other within the church. What do I mean by that? If our speech to one another isn't characterized by love, I mean self-sacrificing for the benefit of one another, um, then we're never going to really be able to speak the truth and love about the gospel to the world outside of us. And another thing that came up in this men's group that we talked about, uh, I talked about earlier last night was the topic was the church and membership in the church and how just as Americans and even American Christians, we just have this phobia against commitment and this, and this phobia about being known really is what it came down to. Being, being a member in a church in such a way that people are going to figure you out because once they figure you out, they're not going to like you anymore and then they won't love you and then things go south. But really what church membership is all about, and we were, the question brought up, Brian Freeman brought up the question, how do we make church membership attractive to the world, to, even to the Christian world who has such an aversion to it? And, and what we came up with, what the church is really offering is a, is a community where people totally know you and they love you anyways. They know all about you and they make, and they've decided because how much Jesus loves us and how much Jesus has expressed his love and his unconditional love to us that we know all about you and we love you anyways and that is something people don't get anywhere else man trust me think about that your work your job your other clubs is there any other place where i mean other than maybe real close family and close friendships where people totally know you and love you anyways so you, and that is the blessing that God has given us in the church. It's what the church has to offer. It's the model of God's love for us because that's how God loves us, right? It's the beauty. What God loves us, here, this is going to be a shock. God loves you not because of who you are. Sorry. <laughs> God loves you because of who he is. And his love for you is what is producing like love, loveliness in us. And that's, that's the beauty of the Christian life is God bringing us into 
that kind of, by, by, by putting us up against conflict and, and, and bringing us through sorrow and breaking our bones and mending them, all that metaphorical stuff we sung about earlier, is bringing us to that point where we begin to be people who then love other people, not because of who they are or what we can get from them, but we start loving people because of who we've become. That's what sanctification and the Christian life is all about. That's the blessing that God's trying to give us through all of this hardship. And so, here's the deal. If we in the church are characterized by bad attitudes and petty disputes and our speech is characterized by self-righteous disdain for the people that have sinned against us and what we think they're going to do next, you know? You know when somebody sins against you and then you take that sin and you put it on like a filter and you just start looking at them through that filter, you know, and then you start thinking that wasn't just a random incident, that that was like... That was like deep-seated character flaw that only you can see in your holiness. And not only, you know, did they do that, but this is what they're going to do next if they have the chance. There's another filter. It's called a grace filter. It's the one that God looks at you through. And he puts it on and he says, she's perfect. That's how we're supposed to look at each other. If we don't do that, we disdain people and we're just known for backbiting and slandering each other and talking badly and speaking poorly of one another. When we go to someone and say, God loves you, God knows all about you, and God loves you anyways, it's not going to be believable. No one's going to buy it because we don't buy it. The gospel is already offensive enough. We don't have, one of my old pastors used to say, the gospel is offensive, so you don't need to be. And that's true. The gospel is already offensive enough. So if we don't focus on loving each other here, we're going to have a really hard time convincing other people that God loves them. Amen. So God promises to protect his messengers. One. Two, as we speak the truth in love. Three, uh, the hard truth that we speak is that the time is short, and so seek Jesus now. Um, you know, being God's witnesses in the world is not an easy thing. We're up against a lot of obstacles, and one of the bigger ones is that people think I've always there's always more time. Oh, we got more time. Uh, time is not short. There's always more time to get serious about God. Look at chapter 7, verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. When I was young, I remember distinctly thinking, I was raised in the church, but I I wanted to be a rock star, so I remember thinking to myself, I'll be a Christian later. I mean, this was much younger, right? In my teenage years, I was like, I will go out into the world and do my thing, and then when I get old, I'll come back to the church. 
I thought I would enjoy the best of both worlds, that I would get my sin now and then get Jesus later, right? What is it, what is it about young, being young that makes you think you're invincible like that, that you just have all the time in the world? Have you seen those YouTube videos of the, the parkour guys that go on the top of skyscrapers or they go on the end of the, the antennas and the guys, they're like right here and it's like a 5,000 foot drop and they're doing this? Have you seen that? Oh my gosh. On one hand, it makes me want to go do it and I totally forget I'm 50 and I could just go and do that and have, like my wife would allow me. Um, on the other hand, it's just terrifying. You know, just last year we went to Yosemite. The week before we went, there's a famous adventure guy named Dean Potter, and he, we went, he did a wingsuit jump off of a peak in, in Yosemite Valley and, and, and crashed and died. Thought he was, he was this guy, thought of anyone, this man thought he was invincible, that he was, above, he was not going to die, but he did. There's just something about being young that makes death unreal. I, you know... I had a friend named Eric Moreno, and when I was five days sober, most of you know my story, 12 years ago, God pulled me out of a horrendous drug addiction, and um, one of my partners was a guy named Eric Moreno, and, and I'd gotten sober, and I was about five days sober. My friend Maureen came to me and said, hey, I was like, hey, well, I saw her at some f- function, and I said, what are you doing? She's like, well, I'm, I'm going to my friend Eric Moreno's uh, funeral, and, I, and it was just, I, I thought to myself, I goes, Wow that guy's got the same name as my friend Eric. And as we talked a little longer, I realized we were talking about the same guy. I didn't know that he'd been killed. And um, I had talked to him the day before. And we had talked, he was going to get sober the next day. He was going to call his sponsor, and he was going to get sober, and we were going to go to some meetings. And the very next day, that night, he died that night. He thought, like I did, that he had more time. But he didn't. There's a story about Charles Spurgeon. He takes his three- and four-year-old son to the graveyard to show them graves of three- and four-year-old boys. And the purpose was to show his three- and four-year-old sons that you don't know how much time you have. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantee there's going to be more time. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, we don't even... You know, churches used to be surrounded by graveyards as a reminder to us of the saints that have gone on. We don't have... We don't, we don't even call them graveyards anymore. They're memorial parks. Like a theme park. And we give them names like Pleasant Hills. We're burying a graveyard. If a graveyard says anything to us, it says there's not more time. Um, there's no guarantees about tomorrow. You know, I think about that a lot. I've got a lot. I could, it's not Eric Moreno. It's not the only guy that I can name that thought they were going to make it and didn't. Um, Praise God for his grace to me. You know, um, the saddest thing about this passage, though, is this. is verse 35. 
the response of the Jerusalem Jews to Jesus when he, when he says this, when he says that you know, he's only going to be with them a little longer. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? You know, they said that in kind of a sneering way, like, where, where else would this guy go? Would he just go, would he go to the Gentile dogs and try to teach them Judaism? Of course he would, couldn't do that, right? They just assume that God would have no dealings, that no one would really have any dealings with the, with the Jerusalem Jews. But, you know, the sad thing, the, the awful thing about this is it's one of those things that John records, one of those ironic things where people actually prophesy their own fate without even knowing it, because that's exactly what ended up happening. The covenant of of grace that was meant for Jerusalem and for the people of Jerusalem was taken away from them. Jesus passed them by, and he took the gospel to the Gentiles, us. None of us, most of us are not ethnic Jews. We're only here because the gospel went out to the Gentiles. They prophesied their own exclusion from God's covenantal love. And here's why, here's why that's so sad. Because it's not, I mean, it's not just about the Jews 2,000 years ago. It's, it's also about the reality that all of us, everyone in this room, we know family members and we have friends who don't know Jesus. who are excluded from this covenant. How do many people do we know that are in that category and how the question that this, pass, this, press, the question that this passage really brings out and what hit me, convicted me, was how willing are we really willing to sacrifice to bring the gospel to the people that we know who are not in covenant, who do not have the same blessings that we do. And, and again, I don't mean leave your family and, and go to the Sudan. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, what can we do to make gospel witness the, the focus, the committed focus of our lives in a way that's costly? Do we pray? How much time are we spending... How many of us have a list of people that we know that don't know the Lord and we pray through it every day, every week? We have a prayer meeting. It's on Tuesday mornings. I know not everybody can make it, but how much as a church are we praying together and and on our own? How much time are we spending pursuing, trying to find and build relationships with unbelievers so that we might earn the right to bring the gospel? Uh, how willing are we to be inviting people to church events even if we think we might be ridiculed by it or to speak that truth and love when the opportunity comes up? Now, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. What I'm trying to do is let's think about these things. You know, we have this last week, we talked about the 100-member December. Um, we want to build this church from new from people coming to faith in Christ. You know, otherwise we're just spinning our wheels. If we're just laterally transferring people in from other churches, we're just spinning our wheels. We're just shifting inventory around, right? In a big way, these giant mega churches are like spiritual Walmarts. They just 
they just siphoned off people from all bunch of smaller churches that had pastors that cared for them into these giant warehouse and not a lot. It looks like a lot got done, but really not a lot did get done. Um, and so if we are going to build this church, it's just me talking to you guys. We're all in this together, right? God's called me here to be a pastor. God's called all of you here to be part of a church planning family. What that means is we need to really be praying and focusing about how will God use each and every one of us to bring people to Jesus, to faith, to build this church on new conversions. And that's going to be hard. Man, that's going to be hard. I don't, you know, I'm thinking about it, and I think about it all the time, right? That's my job. It's mind-blowing how hard this is going to be, especially without ditching the gospel, right? (laughs) Um, But God has put us here. And God has put each and every one of us, you, me, all of us, in these networks of relationships. And he's done it. He's preordained it from before the foundation of the earth so that some people in amongst our groups of people will respond to the gospel. We just, all we have to do is go out, find them, and not be afraid, right? So let's commit to that. Let's commit to being that kind of a church. We're not just here to, meet on Sundays and learn some moral truths or, 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 you know, it's more than this. We are throughout the week committing to being the kind of church that's looking for who God is bringing into his family and being willing to be committed to it, even if it's costly, and to not take our time for granted, but to make every second count because we don't know how much time we have left. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. It is challenging to us, but it also brings us into the reality of what you're doing on the earth. Uh, Lord, we get so caught up in watching what the world would have us be focused on. Uh, And the honest truth is, nothing is going to survive into the new heavens and the new earth except for the souls that you are redeeming through the church here and now, and you're offering us the opportunity to participate in that one thing, that one thing only that's meaningful eternally. So Lord, we pray that you would help us, first of all, have balance in our family lives, in our work lives, in our relationships and our friendships, so that we don't get out of balance and then do harm to our families or our wives or our children or the things that you've called us to. But we pray that in that balance, you would also help us to see and to think and to focus and to pray on who it is that we might know. Who can we talk to? Who have you divinely placed in our paths? Lord, we know, we know as Reformed Christians that you have called people to your family from eternity past. And our job is not to convince anyone. Our job is to just present the gospel in sacrificial truth and, and have the blessing of seeing you bringing people to life, Lord, and then in the eternal realms, watching them and all of us shine like the stars of heaven, glorifying your name. So, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to focus on it. Help us to be committed to it. And help us to glorify you and each other 
by loving the world and loving each other in, in truth, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.